0: I'm Andrew Faust. Today on Permaculture Perspectives, I'm going to talk about two different major topics of interest of mine and bring them together to give you a clear understanding both of my thinking and analysis process when it comes to helping you as listeners to get something useful. Out of these podcasts, I want to be sure and give you some Excellent tools for what I call your citizen action handbook. So we'll be looking at water and water quality and water pollution and perspectives on water. So water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Because much of the water in the United States and throughout the world is vastly underappreciated and disrespected by the industrial machine. And we'll be looking at different ways in which we need to hold it up as a hallowed and sacred inheritance handed down to us from our ancestors that we will be passing on to future unborn generations who have no voice right now to tell us what it is that we need to be doing a better job at, which is making sure that that 1% of this precious fresh water on this planet is healthy, vital, uncontaminated, and available for future generations to prosper upon. So that's the theme for today's podcast. We're going to look at water. And we're going to start from my critical thinking lens with some of the first large-scale issues that we have to deal with in the industrial economy around water. And I'll be doing a reading from a series of different books and giving you commentary as I read through them, as I have been in the last few podcasts that I've been doing. This book is called Simply Exposed. The subtitle, The Toxic Chemistry of Everyday Products and What's at Stake for American Power. The author's name, Mark Shapiro. I've picked a section from chapter one where we are looking at in particular the numbers and perspectives that we have when we start to really grasp in its entirety what's going on with toxic chemicals and pollution from the consumer sector. But the sword of Damocles hanging over the engineer's head that was not made out of steel, it came rather from Europe. Three years earlier, the European Union had passed a series of directives to address the rising problems associated with electrical waste. The European Commission estimates that each European citizen produces 3.3 tons of e-waste over the course of an average lifetime. Trash that piles up in landfills and leaches toxins into the earth and water. That waste comes from discarded computers, cell phones, DVD players, toasters, refrigerators, clock radios, medical devices, most everything powered by electricity. Every engineer in the room was now being required to rethink the ingredients that enable their complex networks of circuits and chips to work. The Europeans had banned six of these substances, mercury, cadmium, lead, chromium, and two chemical flame retardants called polybrominated biphenyl flame retardants. From all electrically powered devices. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? These heavy metals and chemicals have been integral to the circuitry, solder, and casing of thousands of small and large electronic devices. The EU's directive governing the toxics in electronics carried a bureaucratic title with an awkward acronym the Removal of Hazardous Substances Directive or ROHS. But that bland acronym was striking fear in the hearts of U.S. engineers and executives. The ROHS directive became law after hundreds of studies suggested that the ingredients could have potent carcinogenic and endocrine-disrupting effects. Now, as a side note for your interest here, The National Academy of Sciences in the United States did a number of studies showing that in fact when you are exposed to an endocrine disruptor and a carcinogen at the same time, which we all are, a confluence of chemical interactions because it's estimated by another government agency, the NIH, the National Institute of Health, that your average American has 52 different synthetic chemicals coursing around our bloodstream, stands to reason that. We are all often ingesting both the carcinogen from inhaling formaldehyde fumes, from naphthalates in our fabric softener to an endocrine disruptor coming from the off-gassing of plastic in our water bottle, and it makes it 10 times more likely that we will get cancer from the carcinogen and the formaldehyde because of the way the endocrine disruptor depletes your immune system. The EU also wanted to see its electronics recycled, and none of those six substances are recyclable. They are too toxic. These directives were changing the way business was conducted in Europe, and in the process threatening U.S. firms that failed to adopt with huge financial losses and waning global stature. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency had also conducted numerous studies on these same substances, as have many other scientific bodies in the United States, and had come to similar conclusions as their European counterparts about the substance's toxicity. But it is the Europeans who chose to act. What was perfectly legal in the United States would soon have to be eliminated from electronic devices sold in Europe. All the engineers in that room, like all American high-tech electronics companies, were facing a deadline of July 1st, 2006, six months hence. The high-tech industry is not alone in this quandary. Electronics, automobiles, toys, cosmetics, Europe's new standards are requiring a reassessment of the chemicals inside that make them tick. Evidence has been mounting on both sides of the Atlantic of the troubling effects from exposure to chemicals that are often secret, unknown ingredients in the products and conveniences of our modern era. Both the United States and Europe are seeing rising rates of infertility among males and females, increasing rates of endocrine-related malformations, and neurological disorders that scientists ascribe to the effects of toxic chemicals. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control tested for 148 toxic chemicals in 2005 and discovered their presence in the bodies of Americans of all ages. Quote. The scientific journal Environmental Health Perspectives published by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, concluded that in developed countries, quote, clues from environmental exposure assessments, wildlife studies, and animal and human studies hint that exposure to low-level contaminants may be subtly undermining our ability to reproduce. Globally, The World Health Organization estimates that the deaths of at least 5 million people a year can be attributed at least partly to their exposure to toxic chemicals. Millions more suffer their debilitating carcinogenic, mutagenic, and neurotoxic effects. While Europeans have been trying to limit exposure of their citizens to such substances, the Bush administration has led the United States into a retreat from such protections. Now Europe is presenting an unprecedented challenge to American industry. So that gives you a taste of some of the scope and scale of what we're looking at when we explore why it is that I will often use as a reminder for how I suggest we approach this an age-old axiom and it goes like this, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We can be there at the end of the pipe trying to put on filters and mitigate pollution loads that ultimately We don't even fully understand how toxic they are at nano and microparticle levels. When in fact, our real work needs to be designing them out of our products and our environment. So that's Exposed by Mark Shapiro. I'd also like to share with you a little bit of key quotes from some of my favorite Martin Luther King lectures. Here's one of my favorite King quotes. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. We are challenged to eradicate the last vestiges of racial injustice from our nation. It is either violence or it's nonviolence or non-existence. We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. And apropos this prognostication of perishing together, Put out there by King in that quote in one of his final lectures that was from the one to Stanford University here's a little reading in some of the horrors that the US military has inflicted upon the American landscape this is just an excerpt about one of many many sites around the country one of my favorite shall we say in a dark kind of way exposé journalistic books. This book is called The Threat at Home, Confronting the Toxic Legacy of the U.S. Military by Seth Shulman an exposé journalist. And we're going to read a few pages from chapter 4. This chapter is called A Roadside Attraction. In the northeast corner of Maryland a mile inside the gates of the U.S. Army's Aberdeen Proving Ground. The visitor is confronted by an imposing icon. At first glance, its disconcerting presence calls to mind images of the building-sized donuts and hot dogs that occasionally blare evidence of roadside attractions to travelers along American highways. Here, at the nation's preeminent ordnance facility, The roadside item is, fittingly, a bomb. Not just any bomb, but the largest bomb in the world. The unlikely totem stands on end, roughly a story tall, its nose cone planted firmly in a pedestal of cement. It is a so-called T-12, general-purpose bomb, an Aberdeen official explains later weighing some 43,600 pounds. The attraction, it advertises, is the U.S. Army Ordnance Museum. William Atwater, a former Marine with a doctorate in military history, presides here as curator of the collection T-12 bomb and all. The assembled graveyard of military hardware ranges, as Atwater puts it, from the sublime to the ridiculous. It includes 8,000 items, foreign and domestic, everything from an assortment of small German-made firearms to an American atomic cannon, which, luckily for humankind, was abandoned by its designers before ever being put into service. Atwater says most of the 200,000 tourists who visit here annually come for the thrill of seeing big bombs and armored fighting vehicles up close. Atwater isn't shy about what he terms the entertainment factor of the collection, but he also stresses its archival value. As an archive, in fact, stripping away the tourist-oriented hype, the collection offers many lessons about the history and scope of human obsession with destruction. Each of these thousands of individual weapons, after all, represents its era's most effective and diabolical means of killing people, Many of the foreign weapons here were brought to Aberdeen for hasty study in the midst of major wars, a practice that often played an important role in military intelligence. A sense of the awesome breadth of the effort to fight and prepare for war comes through strongly here, despite the presiding theme park aura, but the message is a sanitized one. Not only are the weapons here separated from any mention of their intended use, but the neat displays also belie the damage wrought by the production, testing, and storage of these machines of death. This latter fact is especially ironic given the museum's location. Aberdeen Proving Ground sits northeast of Baltimore and just south of the Susquehanna River on two squat chunks of coastline that jut out into the Chesapeake Bay. Between these two massive pieces of land, an inlet of the bay cuts deep into the Maryland coast. This estuary, home to a wide variety of waterfowl and woodland mammals, has been designated by Congress as the Susquehanna National Wildlife Refuge. Because of the coastal geography and because of the extensive pollution here, each half of the 70,000-acre Aberdeen facility has been included separately on the Superfund's listing of the nation's most hazardous sites. Aberdeen is one of the few military facilities that can claim to be divided geographically by a nature preserve. It is also one of the few military facilities to be included twice on the Superfund list. For decades, a site known here as O'Field served as the dumping ground for staggering quantities of chemical munitions and other highly toxic chemicals. An Army study from 1976 showed that O'Field was an environmental disaster area. Soil tests in 1985 uncovered astonishingly high levels of dangerous chemicals in the groundwater at the edges of the site, 1,500 times the maximum allowable level of cancer-causing vinyl chloride, hundreds of times the permissible EPA levels of benzene and trichloroethylene, and alarmingly high levels of 40 dangerous compounds. Like O'Field, Aberdeen's broader environmental quandary challenges even the notion of remediation, not to mention its implementation. The Army's feasibility study for the base's contaminated sewerage system, for example, offers little hope. As Cindy Couch, an environmental officer at Aberdeen, put it, the study shows quite simply, quote, that there is nothing available to deal with the mess safely. At some of the installations, toxic sites, even the use of remote-controlled cleanup technologies has been judged impossible because of the dangerous levels of toxic material the excavations might release into the air. The severity of the environmental damage here raises obvious questions about the military's historical practices. Exactly how? for instance, did such a dangerous situation ever evolve. Few people over the course of recent decades bothered even to note what was done with discarded nerve agents, mustard gas, napalm, and a host of other noxious chemicals. The so-called O-field now sits at the center of the Aberdeen facility's southern Superfund site. A a four-and-a-half-acre burnt-out plot fenced off and pockmarked with numerous pits and craters. Because no cleanup work has taken place yet, the site, above ground at least, remains much the same as it was described, littered with explosive material and chemical agents. So I'm going to leave that cheery reading there now and move on to some other material, but you can see why it is that I'm starting out this reading with saying as King suggested, rather than military bases we need to make bases of concern and understanding. I'm gonna switch gears now and start to talk a little bit about domestic water and dialing in on another scale of pollution issue. Um, Again, I know permaculture is about solutions, and I'm getting to these. And I also want to give you, in these podcasts, real useful information about how to navigate through much of the present reality that we do find ourselves mired in with a clear surgical understanding of just what we're dealing with so that we continue to keep our inspiration and motivation to create these alternatives intact and oriented in the right direction. So here's another reading, and this is from a book entitled, and I read a, a, a bit or two out of this in previous podcasts. This book is entitled, Troubled Water. What's wrong with what we drink? This is by Seth M. Siegel, and this is one that's a very recent publication. This one just came out in 2019. And I'm going to read to you from a section entitled, Teflon comes to Hoosick Falls. This is why we need a new economy, a new direction, and we need to utterly and completely turn around from this use of such highly toxic chemical and industrial materials. Hoosick Falls is in Hoosick Falls, New York, near the border of Vermont. With Teflon products becoming the backbone of the manufacturing base in Hoosick Falls, The PFOA embedded in it wasn't limited to the products made in the town. Over time, and through several pathways, PFOA made its way into Hoosick Falls wells and drinking water. Some of the Teflon factories, including one 400 yards up a slope from the town's main source of water, incinerated their waste. There's a brilliant idea sending the nearly indestructible PFOA particles airborne. The cinders would settle in the town's many open spaces, those pretty lawns and the manicured little league field included, and when rain fell, the chemical would be drawn into the soil and groundwater, the latter of which was the source of Hoosick Falls drinking water. The contamination of that groundwater with no required testing for or filtration of PFOA before the water was distributed, would expose John Hickey and his family and every town resident to potential harm. Propelled by gravity, groundwater, which is found in the tiny air pockets between grains of sand or soil, bends around clay and other impermeable objects, It keeps in motion until it gets trapped in some geological formation that doesn't let it move farther or until it is pumped out to be used for drinking or some other purpose. Invisible to us, groundwater can travel great distances, picking up contaminants along its journey. Once contaminated, the noxious groundwater can befoul previously pristine places. Sometimes, pollutants that are drawn into groundwater get degraded during the underground route because of heat or cold or the passage of time. In other instances, toxic substances in polluted groundwater get rendered harmless after contact with naturally occurring elements in the soil that neutralize the contaminant in a chemical reaction, but not PFOA. Just as the chemical survives incineration, PFOA also survives the encounter with a range of temperatures and soil conditions. This may be why PFOA from Hoosick Falls groundwater was found in private drinking water wells as far as 10 miles outside of the town. Ironically, well-intentioned environmental regulations issued in the early 1980s made the Hoosick Falls groundwater contamination worse. In an attempt to improve air quality, every every factory with an incinerator was obliged to install scrubbers on its smokestack. Once a week, maintenance workers at those Hoosick Falls factories, including the factory just upslope from the town's aquifer, would remove the scrubbers, bring them outside, and hose them down. The filtered PFOA residue would be absorbed into the soil and the groundwater. Even the town landfill became an entry point for contamination. The solid waste facility was used to bury some of the industrial trash from the town's factories, much of it containing PFOA. Over time, the waste would break down, but not the enduring chemical. Few landfills are completely watertight, and the one in Hoosick Falls was not. PFOA in the Hoosick Falls landfill leached into the soil and percolated into the groundwater. While the factories were the primary cause of contamination, the groundwater flowing into the town's aquifer and nearby wells from several directions was its means of delivery. Incrementally and slowly, the groundwater grew more contaminated. As the groundwater provided the water for the town's wells, soon, and likely for a long time before it was discovered, the wells fed a toxic brew into the faucets of every home in the village. Despite the groundwater contamination, if you lived in Hoosick Falls, You had benefited economically from the Teflon factories going back to the mid 1950s, but the benefit came, even if invisibly, at a price. Those in Hoosick Falls were unwittingly and regularly ingesting PFOA, a chemical resistant to breaking down and resistant to being flushed out of the body once consumed. Had they known the full story, it is likely few in the pretty village would have been willing to pay the price. See, and I picked that passage particularly because it is about paying a price and it is about full understanding and comprehension of what is the life cycle and impact of this frivolous reliance upon incredibly insidious synthetic petrochemical agents throughout our daily lives, landscapes, and economy. This must end. It must be stopped. And we need to do it now for ourselves and for future generations. Elimination of petrochemical and radioactive materials as part of the public sector and the private sector is key to the survival and well-being of our species. And it goes from the scale of everyday electronic products down to military devices and methodologies and weapons and into really erroneous and mundane products like non-stick surfaces on dishware. So now that you're getting a grasp of this scale of the legacy and how it goes from the minutia and the small scale to where you need to know how to be a research hound about groundwater and well water and understand municipalities, we want to understand also why Would authors who write books like this, for instance, say that really, um, here he goes so far as to say in chapter 9, that rather than find ways of filtering the water to remove all the toxic matter, that the solution is not to ban contaminants, but that the solution in his view is actually just to put filters on pipes. And I see that as utterly contradictory to the beginning chapter where he's talking about PFOAs and Hoosick Falls, which cannot be filtered. Those two information sets are contradictory. You cannot understand the nature of what went on with PFOAs and PCBs and DDTs and radioactive materials and say, whoa, let's just put a filter on the end of the pipe. It's a bunch of scientific nonsense. It will not work. And we know that many of these contaminants cannot be filtered. They are too microparticle and nano. And their character is also way too egregious as far as their biological pathways for contamination. So that's Troubled Water by Seth Siegel. A lot of good material in there. Just read it with your own intelligence filters. And now I'm going to share some interesting stats that I found in another book that I'm reading. And this is just a quick wrap-up for today's talk that I'm going to synthesize under this reading from a book entitled, The Big Thirst. The Secret Life and Turbulent Future of Water by, believe it or not, Charles Fishman. Here we are. We're... On page 109 at the top of the page. It hasn't taken us long to get used to indoor hot and cold running water, to water service. We never have to think about, in 1940, 45% of the US population lived in homes without complete indoor plumbing. And in 1950, more than one-third of U.S. homes still lacked indoor plumbing, including 10 states where a stunning 60% or more of the homes didn't have it. So this is just in 1950. 60% of homes in some states did not have indoor plumbing. In both 1960 and 1970, the United States had a startling benchmark During the 10 years when the United States made it to the moon, more homes had televisions than had complete indoor plumbing. In 1960, 83% of homes had plumbing and 87% had TVs. In 1970, 93% of homes had plumbing and 95% had TVs. What we take for granted Isn't the water itself, of course, so much as the work and the money necessary to provide instant safe water. It takes at least $29 billion a year in the United States just to keep up with the deteriorating water pipes and aging water treatment plants. The typical American family spends about $34 a month on its water utility bill, $408 a year. But the water system, the pipes, pumps, and treatment tanks, needs $260 per family per year in capital spending just to prevent things from corroding and aging into uselessness. And that doesn't count what it costs to improve the quality of drinking water and sewage treatment as scientists wrestle with the danger of micropollutants. It doesn't cover the cost of increasing demand for water, It doesn't account for the costs of grappling with water scarcity, which is often hugely expensive. So, and then I wanted to share with you a section here where he talks about further what it is that we can do about water availability. It's, it's very interesting because both of these books, the, uh, <clears throat> the Big Thirst and Troubled Water, they both talk a good bit about land application of sewage water as a way to increase aquifer recharge and to get wastewater to be part of how it is that groundwater becomes replenished. But what is interesting is neither of these books really appreciates what it is that rainwater can be doing to play a major role in these impacts that right now are happening because of our utter and complete reliance upon the groundwater as being the only source. You'll see uh, in both of them a real lack of appreciation For the potency and opportunity that we have available to us when we begin to look more completely at really how reliable in many parts of the country, and especially in this part of the country, rainwater is. Rainwater in the northeastern United States is absolutely a major part of how it is we can meet our water needs, offset this reliance upon groundwater, and begin to catch, hold, store, and become more water independent at our homes, in our villages, at both a municipal scale and at a household scale, we will find that rainwater is a huge asset that is vastly underutilized and underrecognized even in major books that are coming out on the topic of water where the authors are grappling with many very important and fundamental issues i'm finding an overall lack of literacy at two levels one literacy in how important prevention is of contamination and pollution and why no matter how ingenious our end of the pipe land application notions are of how to handle sewage. We also need to begin paying attention to keeping contaminants from getting into wastewater and we need to be thinking more comprehensively about the source separation of pollution loads and not combining them and developing a much more thorough understanding of how it is we can improve water quality, water security, and water availability through those three methods of preventing contaminants from getting into water in the first place, eliminating them from the public sector and from the military, and beginning to source-separate black water, gray water, and telling industrial facilities that they must treat their water on their own facility, and they cannot send it to centralize sewage treatment facilities. These implementation solutions at an infrastructure level are going to go a lot farther than spending vast amounts of time innovating end of the pipe filters that ultimately are an ineffective way to deal with this sacred and invaluable resource that our ancestors have handed to us and that we are handing to future generations. And that sacred material is this glorious and miraculous feature of our planet that is fresh water, drinking water, the water that flows through our streams and our ponds, and that all kinds of amazing creatures in addition to ourselves live in, on, and are part of the rich abundance that the earth holds up as a cornucopia to support the entire web of life, of which we are a uniquely precocious being with a very wide capacity to enhance, improve, and increase the wealth and health of our collective inheritance. And I look forward To creating and weaving this web of abundance for ourselves, in our communities, in our homes, and in our consciousness. I hope you found today's podcast informative, interesting, and if you have any follow-up questions and desire to collaborate or work on projects with me, please drop me a line, give me a call. I'm at 917-584-4588. And my website is permaculturenewyork, one word, permaculturenewyork.com. Drop me a line. Look forward to being in touch. To the evolution, my friends.